You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Helen Thorne. Helen is an award-winning comedian, podcaster, and author, widely known for her honest and hilarious take on parenthood, being single in her 40s, and body positivity. Together with Ellie Gibson, she is the co-host of the hugely popular Scummy Mummies podcast and has performed to packed-out theaters around the UK. Helen's book, Get Divorced, Be Happy, is a joyful guide to going it alone, showing you that divorce is not the end, but very much the beginning, and is out now in paperback in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Helen and I explored what might have happened if, at the age of 26, she'd not moved from Australia to the UK with the man who became her husband and who she ultimately divorced. Along the way, we discussed finding joy after divorce, the wounds left by infidelity, and the life-saving magic of really good girlfriends. Hi, Helen. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. I'm I'm excited about this new life I'm about to embark on. I've I've listened to previous podcast episodes and I, I'm I'm game. I'm in. Amazing. That's what I like to hear. We're gonna go on a happy little adventure together. And we're going to obviously go back in time, but we're also going to uh get out of the country for a little while as well in your new mm. path. But before we do that, I just wanted to talk for a minute about your book, Get Divorced, Be Happy. Um, mainly because I, I really like talking to you about divorce, but I think we, there's something so fundamentally, uh, I want to say optimistic, but I, I think that's too sort of easy because I think in your book, you're, you're really realistic. And what you do, especially in the beginning is you really go into the sort of heart wrenching, soul crushing, just like snot all over your face, disaster, um, experience that is divorce, but you also you also come out of it and you come out of it with this really delightful outlook. And I think that like, it's like somewhere around divorce time for me, I kind of missed the memo that the, it's like, I don't think I ever thought that sort of happiness was the end game. So I just wondered if you could say a bit about the book and and then how you're so frigging peppy. Oh, excellent. Um, well, <laughs> well, I think, I think that's very natural because you know, if you if you use a sort of a metaphor of a chair, you know, the chair, the comfortable chair that you were broken in, you, you were sitting in when you were in your marriage, you're like, this is the chair that I'm meant to be sitting in. And then it breaks, right? And then you think, I've just got a broken chair. This is my life. Everything is broken around me. And and you just get used to being uncomfortable and sad. And you're like, well, this is how I am now. I'm the broken woman. I am, everything's hard and uh, everything's not like it was. And so for me, I think, you know, I because I got divorced during the pandemic or separated, 
I had to really sit really deep and fucking hard in the sad. I couldn't be hugged by anyone. I was in a, you know, I was in sort of like, as I say in the book, heartbreak boot camp, right? And so I had to go very, very deep and very, very sad. And I I think once the world opened up again, um, you know, three or four months later, I just, I was just so eager to be happy again as well. And I kept thinking of all the things like making a list of all the things I hated about my husband or ex-husband and all the things I could do again. And, and I just felt free. I felt like I was, I was rather than being given, rather than seeing the mess, it just felt like a clearing. And so I, I really, rejoiced in all the new possibilities that were ahead of me rather than the things that um, felt messy and hard. And they're still obviously with me and, you know, I still have to deal with my exercise because of my kids. But um, I I did feel elation and joy and I felt a lightness that I hadn't felt for a very, very long time in terms of um, not a living a life without compromise and living a life without criticism. And I think until you've experienced that, and it, and it is that metaphor of boiling the frog that I didn't realise over time just how sad I was. And I was like, oh, this is what happiness feels like, to wake up by yourself and go, I can I can cook whatever I like, or I, I could before, but it was always with a sh- it was always with sighs and humps and an expectation mm. of of like, oh, that's not good enough. And I think, you know, to to, and it's such a silly thing, but to feel good enough every day is is a joy, and to feel enough. Um, so yeah, and 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 also I think because I wrote the book when I was still very much in it, like I wrote the book during that first year. So it's a clocks from you know finding out about the affair to to going through therapy, and then um, a year to the day, um, I had my final mediation, and we agreed. Um, uh, on the final sort of settlement of the divorce, which was sort of spooky almost to the minute of me finding out about his affair. So um, I wrote it when I was really, really angry and I wanted a divorce book that did encapsulate that sort of, as you said, snottiness, but also had a real um, optimistic and bright outlook because I I had, I had, was already experiencing fabulous sex, um, a renewal of my social life, um, and also I felt like I was reborn as a mother because I had this new exciting relationship with my children. Um, I felt like a better person in all aspects of my life. So I kind of wanted to capture that. But also the female friendships, and I'm sure you can agree, just kind of solidified around me. And I kind of, there was yes. a new light on the love that I already had. And there's so much focus on romantic love and being, you know, someone else's special person when I thought, I'm lots of people's special person. I'm, I'm, I've got this great army of women around me and a few good men, a few, you know, some of them are quite good. Um, that I, I, I just delighted in that. And, and, and I think being the, the position I have as a podcaster and doing stuff on social media and in, and in radio and things like that, that I was privileged to have all these women that came forth, um, you know, previous podcast guests, experts that all sort of came and said, you're going to be okay. And I thought I, I've been in this great, you know, place where I've received all this great information. So writing the book was a real way in which I could gift back all that sort of wisdom to other women going through the same thing. That's really interesting because I, I, it was really marked throughout the book, just the the array of really amazing, mostly female voices, you know, who, who were sort of weighing in on everything from the sort of psychological point of view to the practical point of view to the, you know, all of these things. So I love that, that it was like this network of women who kind of surged up to to help you in the aftermath of your divorce. Yeah, like a conference. Like it was like... <laughs> 
because all these women going right this is this is what this is what to do when you're angry this is what to do when you're sad and you know I got people to talk about strength training you know women who have benefited from doing weightlifting and how important um physical strength is is uh aids your recovery as well and exercise and and that sort of thing and I and you know writing it wasn't easy because I had to relive the trauma that I only recently <laughs> gone through um but you know um our dear mutual friend Dr Rachel Master um I became friends with her on social media because of simple parenting and then I interviewed for the book and now she's become you know a wonderful friend so I I, I gained so much from writing the book um and had to confront some pretty hard things but what I've also loved is is that you know obviously I've had lots of fantastic feedback from women but people who are married have read the book and said actually it was a real shake-up and a good wake-up call about the quality of their relationship and where they were heading and and lots of married um friends have read it obviously because they're lovely friends but also they said actually you know there are behaviors that are creeping in that I'm not okay with and it made friends um confront some of those things so I think that's good and I'd, I'd like more people who aren't divorced to read it in terms of also having some empathy about what friends are going through because you know almost half the population are going to get divorced and so it's something that you know obviously we don't want to face and obviously uh that is a sad thing but also it can be a miraculously joyful thing that we can celebrate that a lot of the time people are set free from something that that is holding them back and that has made them very sad for a very long time i mean the thing about the the female friends i think is just i definitely remember this moment Last year, it wasn't a moment, it was a series of weeks when we were selling our family home and I had been in it for the past couple of years. So it somehow it became my job to like deal with all of this stuff. And I just, I just sat around looking at it going, this is impossible. I can't physically or emotionally do this. There's no yeah. way. And then they just showed up. Yeah. Do you know I mean? All, and they were like, and I still think of it like, like they were actual angels. All of a sudden there were just women and like one night friends were over with wine to box up the kitchen and another night they were over with boxes for the books. And you know, it's just yeah. like, it's an amazing thing. You know, I think they're always there, your friends, but I think when they show up for those hard times, it does, it takes your friendship to a new level and you know that fierce love that you have for them they're so protective and you're like I would you know I'd kill a bear for my friends now like I just um and so that that's the absolute joy and you don't have to go through divorce to or any major trauma to realize that but it did take it did take that and and realize how fruitful those relationships are and how you know um I was pouring pouring all this love into a, a man that was obviously not giving any of it back. And then to have these relationships, which just, you know, nurture you and, and make you grow and challenge, you know, I've got friends who really challenge me and go, come on, what are you doing about this? Have you got your pension sorted? You know, hey, come on, stop, stop fucking all those young men, Helen, and get on with it. <laughs> Can you fuck all the young men and sort your pension? Surely they don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? Mm. Mm. No, both both can be mutually beneficial. Exactly. Um, Those are both sound like two important things to do. Needs, needs met. <laughs> okay, well, I want to find out if you're fucking lots of young men in your unlived life. Shall we figure that out? Oh, oh for sure. Absolutely. Okay. So we're... Okay, so we are going to go back to when you are 27 and you're living in Australia. Yeah. Um. Tell me a little bit about what was going on then at that time. 
Okay, so this is back in 2006 and um, I had just finished a solo show. I did a solo women comedy show and I'd, I'd finished up a um, – a television program that I was in and I was working for the National Gallery of Victoria. So I had a great job, which I loved. At a, I had studied history of art. I'd worked in contemporary art. I had a really rich life full of possibility. Um, but at that time, my my ex-husband or my boyfriend at the time were thinking, oh, we should go back to London. We'd lived in London a couple of years beforehand and he started applying for some jobs. I thought, Yes, this is what we need to do. And I was I was so desperate to get married. I thought, actually, I've had all this attention. I've had all this love. It's it's his turn. So he started applying for all these jobs. And um and he kind of got this dream job, which was uh working um uh in Cambridge in a in an engineering job he loved. And I thought, yeah, this is great for him. You know, I, I'm I'm really happy to give up, you know, my comedy career, <laughs> my amazing art career. Uh, you know, I'll just focus on him. It's his turn kind of thing. And we'd previously done some couples counselling. I mean, who does that when they're 20? But we had. And um, and I remember him saying in the, the counselling section, like, it's really hard for me because when you when you enter a room, everyone wants to talk to you and no one wants to talk to me. You kind of light up the room. I, instead of thinking, oh, what a prick, he doesn't love me for me, I thought, oh, oh, I'm too much, you know. And I think there's <sighs> all those sort of tropes about, you shouldn't diminish your light for someone. I literally did. I literally put the dimmer switch on my career, friendships and all those sort of things in Melbourne. And I was genuine, genuinely excited about it. I thought, oh, this is a fresh start. We'd had a couple of um, wonky years together. I mean, that should have been the big red flag that we weren't happy. And, and Well, let's. I want to pause on the red flag for a second because just say a little bit about the relationship because you guys had been together like since university, right? Yeah, so I met when I was 19 okay. and I was actually dating another guy um, uh, and but he was on exchange in Germany and so it was easy to fuck around while he wasn't there. But he was he was really the love of my life. He was joyful and easy and and made me feel even brighter and lighter. And, you know, we'd sing duets together, we'd cook together and it was this sort of heady fling that you have, you know, we met in the summer and it was all beautiful. But then he's like, oh, I'm going on exchange to Germany. And so we'd write letters to each other every day. I even sent him. Now, this is before mobile phones, right? I even one night got naked and painted my naked body blue and sent him three different naked body prints, let them dry, rolled them up in a poster tube and sent them to Germany. So he had a full, oh. three full-size um, naked prints of my, you know, my bush and my, my tits. But um, but that was what? like pre-dick pic, you know, that's pre-tip pic. I wanted him, you know, and I was studying contemporary art at the time, so it was all a bit Eve Klein and, you know, blue, blah, blah, blah. So I had that, um, I had this sort of, joyful um, relationship and then um my ex-husband was at the same university college as me and one night we got drunk and and snogged and banged and things like that and then I was in this decision you know it was all tricky and then I sort of went with uh my ex-husband who was more emotionally closed off he was difficult I thought he was kind of enticing and harder work and I was like oh he's a real project and we had lots of mutual friends it was easy it was a comfortable chair you know I thought oh he's he's solid you know he's going to be an engineer and the other one was sort of more flighty he ended up being a chef and you know much nicer person by all <laughs> accounts and then we just sort of lumped together but he was always emotionally difficult he wasn't overtly and and continued so um 
in his praise or he wasn't sort of, what's the word, overly amorous. And I, you know, I think, look back, I think, what was I doing? <laughs> I should have, I, A, I should have just had no boyfriends at that stage. I was 19 and, and gorgeous and should be absolutely throwing my pussy about. Um, but I didn't, I didn't. I, I kind of was racing for security. And I think, you know, looking back, that comes from, being a teenager and not having great self-worth and and all that sort of stuff and and I think you know it feels like when you're in a relationship you feel completed like you feel like oh look someone else loves me I feel validated I feel like um you know that's something to be really proud of rather than forging your own life alone Mm, it gives you sort of a language for yourself doesn't it when you're in a relationship you can talk about yourself as a couple you can suddenly you have things mm. you can kind of say about you as a as somebody who's attached to another person and that's it kind of buoys you a little bit doesn't it it does it's intoxicating saying we my boyfriend my boyfriend and I are going to go off and do this and you know moving in together setting up home you know there's a real there was a real urgency within me and wanting to get married very early on as well and I think I'd always wanted to be a bride. I'd played brides as a kid. There's photos of me when I was five dressed in white and pretending. And obviously there's that those influences from Disney and all those sort of things, the happily ever after, and I was sprinting for the finish line. But he didn't make me feel secure. I just remember there were like parties where other girls would sit on his knee and I'd want to cry and go home and he would say, but they're just friends. And he could see that he didn't reassure me. He, it was all my fault. And this is before that term gaslighting was around but obviously the the act was very much there but we didn't have the language or or in which we sort of talked about that kind of behavior as well mm-hmm. so you know he just never made me feel secure and there's a power in that because it's a disruptive like oh it could always get better so I think in my head when I skip to when we go back to we were thinking about moving overseas I'm like oh well we can start again like I just had faith that if I just held on really tight I would make it work. I could, I could bring, I could infuse the happiness into this um, fairly miserable man. Um, and and I, I don't think I'm alone. There's so many women who who do that. They, they they don't want the easy. They want the bastard. They want the harder, the harder rock, the harder nut to crack. So yeah, I think there was there was unbridled hope in coming to the UK, and I was willing to sacrifice all the good that I'd done within my career and my friendships for that. And um, you know, I you know want to go back to my 26 year old self and give her a good shake, give her a good slap. Um, well, we're at least gonna go. We're gonna go back to her and give her another option. I think is what. Yes, we're I think do. that's probably better than violence. <laughs> so really quickly, like, tell me. So you you your career in Melbourne like immediately took off. My comedy career took off really quickly. I entered a national competition and ended up in the final national final. My seventh gig. I performed to, um, I think it was nearly 2,000 people in the Melbourne Town Hall. I'd won the state final. uh, And then the following year I got chosen to be in a festival-managed show called The Comedy Zone and I was with three other comedians. And the following year after that I um, did a solo show and that that had gone really well and I'd been on an arts and culture TV show on the ABC and I was a panellist. So, like, everything was sort of pointing, going, yes, this is what you should be doing. My solo show was called Helen Thorne is Arty Farty and I played three different art characters like a cellist an art gallery director uh and a, and a and a philanthropist an arty philanthropist so it was great and I was enjoying the writing process and and balancing all that sort of stuff but yeah all I wanted was to get married I wanted a ring on the finger you know there was all these mutual friends and it was 
you know, this was this is what was meant to happen. I was meant mm-hmm. to meet him at 19. We were meant to buy a house. We'd bought a house actually a couple of years before that in Melbourne. We were part of a group of friends who um, were all moving in together and I liked that. I liked being in the couples gang. I didn't want to be the girl on the shelf and that's really fucking patronising. I am... I, I I don't feel like I'm on the shelf anymore, like I, as a single person. I like standing pretty tall. But um, I also think because of my lack of self-worth and confidence that I didn't think anyone else would have me. I think, you know, mm. and I think that's, but that comes from how you're spoken about by another person. But I also, you know, that's embedded into you about, oh, well, no, hang on to him. You know, he's good enough. No one else sort of raised the red flags. Until I got divorced and they were like, oh, we never really liked him. You're like, always, oh, yeah. Always, always. Yeah. You're like, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, which poses the question, those listening to uh, the podcast now, do you go off to your friends going, your husband's shit, we hate him. <laughs> do we do that? No, we don't. No one does that, or they do it very rarely. So I think we should set you on your path. Yes, please. Let's I'd do love, that. I'd love to rewrite that bit. Let's rewrite that bit. So you guys have a house. You're in Melbourne. You're 26 or 27? Yeah, I'm 26, yeah. You're 26. He comes to you. You guys are talking about this London thing. He's looking into it. He comes and he's like, I've got this amazing job in Cambridge, engineering, yada, yada, yada. Come on, babe, let's go. And I go, I say, actually, what's worth more is my career and my future. And I've got everything here. You're only one small part of my life and everything else is good I wish you all the best and we've had a great time but I've worked hard to get where I am and I love I love my friends and I love my family and I love where I am and I want to see where this is going to take me this is exciting people want me and you know uh, (laughs) I'll keep the dog so I think that would be and it would have been heartbreaking everyone's like no why for a bit but then, but then I would have had this exciting comedy career in front of me and still being paid well in my art career. And um, and things were just sort of taking off. I was getting more paid gigs and that's, you know, that's what I, and I'm doing really interesting, I'd be doing more interesting like all-women gigs. And it was sort of on the cusp of a big explosion in Australia in terms of, um, you know, all-female comedy nights and I was, very much chosen to be part of those and be to be seen in that industry. So I, I think that's why that's where I'd be headed more okay. and more, more solo shows and maybe radio. That's what I really loved. I loved, you know, this is pre podcasting. So any chance to sort of bang on and have other people listening to you as we both can agree, it's a lovely thing. Um, okay. Well, let's figure it out. Let's get some specifics. So first of all, you're, are you staying in the house? Yeah, I'd stay in the yeah. house and I'd get a housemate. And a really cool lady housemate who's also single who teaches me about sex and dating because I hadn't done any of that. I'd only banged five guys previously to my ex. So I would have a sexual explosion, I think. You have a sexual explosion. Um, I just want to know a little bit more about your roommate other than unless that's the most important thing. I mean, that's definitely the most no, important I, thing. No, I, I think I'd like an older lady because I've, okay. I've got lots of friends who are good, you know, sometimes 10, 20, 30 years older than me. And I feel like I'd... I would be taken under her wing. She'd teach me how to cook. She'd teach me the ways of being a single woman. She'd slap me around if I came home drunk uh, and go, come on, you know, you're better than this. Um, And I want that. And also I would want to get into exercise, which I'd given up when I was about 18. 
And so I, I'd, I'd want to have the body I have now as a 43-year-old back when I was 27 because I was really, really overweight when I was 27, like really quite overweight. Both my ex and I got very fat. <laughs> when what we was that? Oh, and, we, that, and you, but you said you you struggled a bit with your weight when you were younger as well. Is that right? Yeah, was, yeah, and was, yeah. And so, um, yeah, when I moved to the UK, I was, I was overweight. We, the house where we bought was right next to the strip of Vietnamese restaurants. So every night you could just smell the duck and the pork and we'd like, we'd just be eating takeaways every night and we got more and more un, unhealthy. So I, I would, would have loved to have in this new life discovered what I have now about food and exercise and loving the endorphins that I get the hit the love it's almost like the love drug I get I get so much love you know from exercising and sweating and things like that that I you know didn't get uh from a relationship so I'd I'd really want that did you discover your current love of exercise in the aftermath of the divorce as well or were you running beforehand I was running but not to the extent that I am now so I was I was a pootler I was a jogger I was a shuffler and also I was, you know, five stone heavier. So when I was, you know, when I got divorced, when I was separated, I was on, on the path to running the marathon, but a very, very slow marathon. Um, and I didn't push myself the way I push myself now to get faster and do really long distances, but I enjoyed it. And, and there was nothing wrong with the running that I was doing. It's just not what I do now. Not, not on my sort of aggressively ambitious running targets that I've, I've come to enjoy. Maybe a cry for help. Maybe not. Maybe I'm, <laughs> I am literally running away from my problems. Do you find it straight away? So he's got also just super quick question. Do you fully sever your ties with him? That's not, you're not going to try to do long distance. You're not going to try to see what happens. You're just done. Oh, in an ideal world. And let's, let's make this life fantastic that I, I do, I do sever ties and okay. don't hang out with his terrible friends. <laughs> I want rid of them as well. They were a bore. Um, so I think because I already was very, uh, what I am in this new life, rich with friends from comedy, friends from the art world, friends from school. Uh, and, and I get more friends because I'm making friends wherever I go. So I think that that's what I would delight in. And, and that my, you know, relationships with my siblings, uh, are stronger as well. Cause I'm hanging out in Melbourne with my family. So I get Who's more. There? Who's your family in Melbourne? Uh, so I'm one of five children. Wow. So my three older siblings and my younger sibling as well. So I have that and I have more quality time with my parents. So because I've lived here for 16 years, so I've missed out on that now that I my parents live by the beach and I I learned to drive. I have still not learned to drive and I'm 44 in a couple of weeks. Shame on me, listener. So I'd learn to drive and I'd I would go off on adventures. Okay. Why don't get into camping? Okay, well let's think about it what comedy is happening are you are you in an all-woman all-female troupe are you doing solo shows is it both is it like the whole shebang oh, yeah I think I think I would be um doing my solo stuff and I think at that stage I'd have to make a decision whether okay. to leap out of the art gallery world and focus on stand-up full-time and that's that's what I'd like and I'd like to do a radio show with a couple of other women okay about being single in our 20s amazing who are the other women Oh, can I just list all my favourite, like, Australian stand-up comedians? So there would be, a, you know, a trio of fabulous women and we'd do a late-night radio show about being 
stand-ups and being, you know, confronting uh, all sorts of issues around um, women at the time. So I think that would be that would be excellent, and I'd really enjoy that. I'd just be on community radio. It wouldn't have to be anything famous, but something I really loved. And then we'd get great guests in, and then my networks would kind of flourish. So I'd do a bit of that, and then and then continue writing really good stand up, and maybe hopefully do a few more like TV spots, and and really concentrate on just doing great writing. Okay, yeah. and you and so and and that's all paying enough, so you can you can say goodbye to the art gallery jobs. Yeah, I take that sort of leap of faith. Yeah, well, and done. hopefully I could ha- earn enough that I would pay out my ex uh, to keep the house and the dog. Okay, do you do I'd that? Be- Yep, I'll be okay. financially secure. Well done. Uh, so that's that. And then after a few years, after doing that, I might fall in love. Well, let's hang on. Let's, let's find out. Let's find out. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hey, sister. <laughs> um, you might. You might fall in love. So you do that for a few years and you're running and you've got all of these good, you've got this huge network around you. I'm just wondering if you were to meet somebody, where would you meet somebody? Mm. Because I always think in my unlived life, when I have pondered this before, I would want to end up with someone creative. Mm. So maybe I would like to be fall in love with an artist going to an exhibition. That's that would be lovely because it'd keep my love of the art world there, but we're not competing as performers. There's no there's no one upmanship. I have dated a comedian very briefly before, and it's it's you know it's a lot. Um, so. <laughs> um so I'd have this uh, yeah wild love affair with a with an artist and he'd be mildly successful like me mildly successful so we would be we wouldn't struggle financially uh and we'd both delight in each other's success that's something I haven't experienced in a relationship before is someone going good on you this is brilliant I, I love to see you shine and that's what I would love I'd love going to his exhibitions he would paint me I'd write jokes about him. <laughs> it's so true. It's so rare. And when it happens, it's just, it's mind boggling when someone just kind of is just happy for you. I don't know if this is true, but it feels like maybe it's harder in those younger relationships because everyone's kind of scrambling and trying to sort of oh. figure out who they are and, and who they aren't. Um, mm. And until that, those sort of paths become clearer, it's quite easy just to feel eclipsed by your partner or jealous of your partner yeah it's only it's only in my latter years of my life where I've seen when you do see examples of healthy relationships oh my god this is possible people are nice um when I was still when I was still married um my my dear love Ellie my comedy partner the other scum your mommy um we'd go to people's houses to do podcasts right and we'd be we'd be recording the podcast and then the husband would bring in like some pizzas or a drink I'm like Look at her husband. He's so nice. And Ellie's like, this is the basic standard of kindness, Helen. And she, <laughs> she used to take the piss out of me. She's like, that that man is not exceptional. That is just basic kindness. That if you're gonna guess, then the husband might bring you some food. And she used to take the piss out of me. And then when I got divorced, it became apparent that I hadn't experienced it. So I would want to know what absolutely intoxicating love felt like. And and be swept up and, you know, have those days of eating and fucking and eating and fucking and, and not leaving the bedroom. And, you know, he'd have 
some amazing sort of warehouse bed set with lots of canvases everywhere. And he would live in the city and I'd live out in the, you know, inner city in my sort of little arty house. And, um, and yeah, we'd have this kind of wacky, wacky life together. But then I think after a few years, because my comedy career is going well, okay. his art career is going well, that we would move to, we would move to London. Yeah. That I think because um, for so many Australian comedians and for Australian artists, London is is the mecca. It's the it's the big place to come where your career, you know, I would have done a few Edinburgh Fringe festivals. I would have would have done that. Um and think, no, my career needs because I am I'm quite an ambitious person that I'd I I don't think that will have um you know would be different in this unlived life. Um, I wanted I, to ask about ambition for you. Have you always been ambitious? Yeah, I think I think it comes out of a, a few things. I think it comes out from comes from, sorry, it comes from growing up in a really tiny town. So I think I was a little bit insecure about the fact that I lived in like a cultural wasteland. I lived in a rural part of Australia in country Victoria called the Golden Valley. And I was... I mean, it sounds very nice. The Golden Valley no, sounds like the... Flat. It's like the fruit growing area. It's really ugly. Um, sounds so pretty. Oh, no, it's awful. Okay. Um, no, it's not awful, awful, but it's not great. And so I was severely bullied. I was very artistic. Um, I remember used to getting, you know, um, put down a lot. People said, oh, are you from England? You know, like well, they wouldn't have said it like that. They were like, fuck, are you from England? Why are you speaking so posh? You know, I just spoke the way I spoke. Uh, and I love classical music. I played the cello. I was into school musicals. I was in the debate team. You know, I was rich pickings for bullies. Oh, I love you so much as a kid. You sound amazing. I was a dork, and, but, but, but gloriously so. I love listening to, like, you know, I'd go to sleep every night with my favourite Mendelssohn violin concerto. And I would, you know, I delighted in reading books about art in the playground where I had no friends. Um, but I was, I was my authentic self, and I credit my dear parents for that. How did your parents help you through that? Oh, they showed me a lot of love. They showed my, my dad originally was a vicar and then he became a high school teacher when I was 10. And so I, because it was a tiny town, I went to the same high school as him. And so I was bullied a lot because of that, but I always felt like they had my back. But one of the most life-changing decisions I ever made, so I was being bullied every day. I was finding it really hard to go to school. I'd be crying. Um, and, you know, I, I do think mum and dad found it difficult because I was so miserable and it was a tiny town and it was very obvious that I was having a difficult time. And one day I thought, I can't be this sad anymore. I rang up a school that was an hour away and said, I'm really sad, can you take me? And they said, yes. And then I got all the information and I sat my parents down and I said, I can't be sad anymore, I'm moving schools and I've made that decision. And they went, okay. And um, how old were you? I was 15. Oh, wow. And so I, I, I kind of look back and I think, I think that kind of decision made me, it was one of those decisions that I could have kept being sad and blaming my parents or blaming the school or blaming the kids who were bullying me. And I thought, fuck it. No, the buck stops with me. The buck, my happiness is, is determined by me. I think it's amazing that at the age of 15, you had that sense of power and autonomy. Mm. And I, 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 I do credit a lot of who I am to my older sister. She's 11 years older than me. Um, I was talking to her at 5am this morning because I was heartbroken. She's extraordinary. 
my dearly, dearly, dearly beloved Claire, and she was like having a second mum, so she was in her twenties. Maybe this what this housemate is like is like my sister, because mm. um, I like and Ellie for me is like an older sister as well. She is technically a year older. She loves it when I say that, um, <laughs> but I I feel very nurtured by strong women because I am I'm a big open hearted shambolic disorganized very loving person but I'm quite a mess a lot of the time uh so yeah so my sister really gave me a lot of inner strength I think and I think I I would credit her with so much of my my chutzpah so I think that was that and yeah I'd I sat them down with the school brochures and I said this is what I want to do and I remember they took me to see the school principal and I burst into tears and I said I'm just so sad I'm really sad and they said you can come and start at our school next year so um I started year 10 at a new school and I was so much happier because of it I had to get up really early and catch a bus for an hour but it was my new life and I did really well at school after that and I was free from the fucking bullying and the hate and the and the you know the nasty behaviour, and I felt yeah I don't know the word smug, but I just just was, felt a relief to not go to school and feel like someone's going to be mean to me that I'm going to experience hate. Um, so I think that was a really life changing. So I think that and my divorce when I finally was free, I've been two times where I've gone fuck it this is it. This is my gate, you know, run, run for the gate. (laughs) This is it. This is your moment. Grab this moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. So there've been, there've been some pretty big moments in my life and I've never not, I think I've never not felt lovable, but you know, there's, there's times where you're like, I've had enough of the bullshit. I just can't deal with that anymore. And you don't have to always stand and fight. You can just leave. Yeah. Um, Isn't that, I mean, don't you just think, I just feel like that is one of the ultimate sort of life questions is when do you stay and fight and when do you leave? And that is in so many things. It's in, in your professional life, in your romantic life with friends. But yeah. And I think when people have to break up from family members and things like that, that's really, it's really tough, but ultimately you've got one life and you can't carry, you have no control over how someone's going to respond to you or how they're going to love you as I'm very acutely aware. Um, so you choose you you have to choose that path that ultimately is going to be happy and healthy for you. But sorry, I didn't answer your question. My parents just surrounded me with as much love as they were capable of giving, and I always felt like they supported anything that I did in terms of like playing a cello, playing the piano, playing football, uh, forging those paths. And you know they wanted me to be creative. They took me to lots of classical music concerts. Uh, they took me to theatre. You know, they encourage this creative side, and and for that I am forever grateful. Um, but they never exactly. wanted me to change who I was, and they never made me feel like I was the problem. That's so good. I think that's crucial. Okay. Well, we say that, but we're totally changing who you are because now you. Oh, absolutely! Come on, bring it on. <laughs> um, it's still you. It's still you. Okay, so we are you and your artiste. Mm-hmm. you're moving to London together now let's the the quality of this move does it feel different than the quality of the move with your ex like does it feel more mutual and more yes because I've already found love and I feel secure I'm not seeking more love or a better better quality love I already feel love with this person I fucked around I've had lots of flings but I know this person loves me 
And that's what I want in this altered life. I want to feel, and they want me to do well. They're excited about my comedy prospect and I'm excited about their art prospects. That feels like you're both going for a reason as opposed to one person sort of dragging the other. Yeah. Along. Okay. So you both come over here. You're like early thirties now. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. And, and where do you land? Where are you living? Oh, I think I think I'll be in groovy, groovy Hackney. Surely, that's where the groovy, groovy Australians go. That's where um, all the groovy people go. Oh yeah, that's 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 it. So I'll, we'll congregate around there, and okay. then I'll I'll do my comedy career for a couple of years, and then and then I think I'll have some babies. Have some babies. Is this when you had babies in your real life? When I had you- my first baby when I was twenty nine, and my second when I was thirty two. Okay, so. If I had this new life, I would wait a few more years and travel. And that's what I'd like to do with the artist is, is you know, go to Berlin, go to France, do those things, you know, and have more adventures as as a person without kids. Okay. Have, yeah, that's what I'd like. And do international comedy festivals and things like that. Nice. Okay, so is that what you're doing? You're doing, you're getting booked all over the place and you're, yeah. and you're still, are you solo? Are you doing a solo show? Are you? Yes, I'll be doing a solo show up until that point. Okay. How did your um, co-hosts on the radio feel about you leaving Australia? Were they sad to see you go? Yeah, but we'd done a few years and they, they wanted to go on to other things as well. And they were going on to more successful things as well. Fine. So right. then I would like to have twins because I want to have a girl and a boy. I would like my children, but at the same time, thank you very much. <laughs> And that would be great because I'll only have one pregnancy. I'll do lots and lots of breastfeeding, but then that'll be it. And I won't get married. Okay. And is that? The artist, um, even though I think I want it, I realized that I feel so deeply loved and so secure that I don't need. We have a big farewell party and I wear a white dress and then I feel like that's my wedding. But we don't get married because we say we choose each other every day. That's very nice. Yes. That's very I'm nice. just writing this weird romantic comedy for myself. I think it's delightful. It's okay. It's going to get, this is going to get optioned by Netflix after we're done. It's going to be great. Oh, oh, tomorrow. Um, Just before the babies come, I just, how is it working between the two of you in terms of like your schedule? Because I imagine your schedule is crazy and his is probably a bit more. He's in his studio thinking deep thoughts for really long periods of time. Yeah, yeah. And by then, you know, mobile phones are all right. We can we can text. Yeah. It's all it's a much easier communication. And we're secure in ourselves. And he he knows I love him. Okay. Um, he loves me. All those sort of things. So we have that. And we're still doing, he's, he's flourishing with his art career and we feel, yeah, we, we respect each other's um, uh, professions and things. And, and sometimes he comes on tour with me cause he can, you know, so that's kind of nice. Okay. And I'll have my license so I can drive myself around the country. <laughs> so then you're going to have some babies and you're like 35 and you're having a couple of babies. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's all right. But then I'm finding I just want to, I, I love being a mum and I, I give up comedy for a couple of years. And then I want to meet Ellie Gibson. We'll get, well, I promise we'll get to Ellie. Ellie, we're coming for you, I promise. Uh, just tell me about those couple of years because um, what an amazing choice to be able to make. Yeah, and that's where I, I think because it's that time, you know, and I look back now, it it was on the cusp of all the sort of, mummy bloggers and um everything was very sincere 
And I'm, as an established comedian, I think, oh, it can't be like this. This is really shit. Um, and I start, you know, in my comedy brain, start writing material about motherhood, but it's not great. It's sort of I'm, I'm addled with two babies and um, and I, I miss stand-up, but um, it's just not possible to have twins <laughs> and stand mm. career at that time. And I, I formed some really great mum friendships and, you know, meet other other um, creative types in East London who are also parents and um, and start thinking that I want to go back, but I, I can't do it by myself. But not thinking I want to be in a in a partnership. And I miss my radio buddies as well and my, you know, and think about going back to Australia. Uh, thinking, oh, it would be easier to be with my mom and my dad and and all that sort of stuff. I'd, I'd be on the cusp of sort of pulling up stumps, so to speak, and and going home. And you and your and you and the artist have these conversations about yeah, go back. How's he feeling? Does he like London? Yeah, he does. He's he's established himself as well. And um, yeah, maybe he's doing a bit of teaching. Maybe he's doing some other things, and he's 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 feeling secure there's a theme running through here there is a there's a, a theme of security because <laughs> i'm feeling yeah <laughs> well, the thing um, is, is what i was well what i was about to say was it's so interesting because it sounds like for all of the bullying and trauma of your sort of school life and childhood your family home your home was was secure i mean it doesn't hmm. sound like you had an insecure childhood in that sense but i think we we forget what like grown-up trauma can do to us, if that makes sense. So you had this long relationship where you didn't feel secure and where you had somebody undermining your sense of self for so long, you know, that messes with you and it messes with you for a long time, probably. Or it certainly, yeah. it certainly seems like something you've identified as the most important thing. Yeah. And it's something that I seek. Um, and obviously I've got security in the love of my family and my children and my community and, and my career, but yeah, the prospect of relationships still frighten the fuck out of me, I have to admit. And that's, and that's, and that's something you can kind of, it's hard to resolve because there's still resounding anger towards your ex, especially if you've gone through um, betrayals and affairs that why, why is the pain that they created still sort of ricocheting and having the sort of aftershocks through your life. And I think that, that is a very unjust thing about uh, survivors of affairs is that, um, it's not new partner's fault that you're broken. And you don't want them poisoned by the sort of toxicity of the past, but it's something you have to really be honest about as well, that you are, there's a fragility that that has, has, has occurred, even though we can talk the talk, but then when you're in, when you're in a prospect of a, or potential of a new relationship that you do feel, you do feel very wobbly. And it's, and that's it's something that you wish you could just sort of, you know, wash away and you do have this clean slate obviously there's all those lovely metaphors for when you get single but it is hard work it's really hard work I think that's so well put that idea of, of the the ricochet it's just it's just feels really apt because it does mm. it it gets in you whatever they've done however yeah. they've treated you it gets in you and you you're right you kind of can't control when it affects you and when it doesn't affect you. Yeah. And look what happened. And it sounds so obvious, but it. Yeah. And and then your brain kind of goes, well, how are they going to hurt me? And then you, then you close off a little bit and then you mm. get protective and then you can be a bit, 
yeah, I've, I have found myself when I've been in just being a bit cold because I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to dismiss it before it, I'm going to hurt that person before that hurts, he hurts me. And so I think that's, I think that's the hardest thing is that you don't want to be made a fool of again. That, that's, that's the bruise. That, that's the bruise that's really hard to heal. There's a round of sympathy for this happening to you once, but it's sort of like fool me twice. Oh, I've, I've, I've often had scripts in my head going, how is that person going to dump me? And I've been on the first date. <laughs> is he the guy who says, oh, actually, I've got another girlfriend, or is he the guy who ghosts me? Or how, you know, you, you, you <laughs> self-sabotage these things. You're like, just, just enjoy the drink, you silly bitch. <laughs> drink your martini. Get laid, go home. Show off your tits. Go on, have a lovely time. Stop doing this. (laughs) But it feels like it's doing a protective function. It feels like you're being, you know, like what you term as kind of obsessive or you're being ridiculous or whatever because you're just not there yet. And like, it's just there making you feel a bit ridiculous, but like actually it's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, no, it's protective and also trust the process. (laughs) It is time. And even like my sister at 5am this morning going, it's not that long ago, Helen, it's only a couple of years since you got divorced. Just, it's okay. It's okay to feel a bit wobbly. It's okay to feel a bit vulnerable. She's amazing, my sister. I hope she listens to this podcast. And I owe her so much of everything. I, I credit her a lot for who I am. And it, what what I find really, you know, because I'm in a constant state of, you know, self-development and reflection, so much reflection, um, that, but I get women writing to me every single day. Like there's not a day that doesn't go by where someone hasn't read or listened to the book. And the number one question I get asked by women who've gone through divorce and, and affairs is, when will I feel happy again? How long will it take? Yeah. And this is it. And I, I fucking get that. I get that. They just want... They want an end game. They want They want to know how long is this going to take? You know, I want this colossal pain that I'm carrying around to end. And how? How? How do I do it? What are, what, what's the magic pill? So I think that's, and that's fair enough because it, 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 it is really hard to not know when you'll feel better. But you will. You will feel better. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I think... I never wanted to be, because I've talked to friends whose mothers have gone through divorce and fathers, obviously, and they said, oh, my mum is still bitter about my dad and I hate the way that my mum talks about my dad 30, 40 years old and talks about the divorce. I thought, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. Mm. I don't want to be complaining about my ex. I think the biggest joy was not the, you know, thoughts of revenge and retaliation and all the things I hate about him, was waking up and not thinking about him. And that feels like the the biggest step forward to freedom when you don't wake up and think, ah, he's a cunt. Um, (laughs) You think, yes, what am I having for lunch today? Um, And so I think that that they're the major kind of milestones. Well, because those, that, that feeling and that like the, the constant, like the shouting at him in your head, you know, and like the stupid arguments that you have with him again in your head, like those are all what I finally realized was that there are ways of keeping you connected to him because mm. you're not quite ready to be gone yet. No, it's so much energy. So I think that's, um, I think that's it. And, and so many, and when I was researching the book, so many women said that their exes found a relationship like that, like yes. straight in from, you know, they may have been having an affair and then they go on to have another affair. 
And um, so they just find them and you're like, how do you do this? Yes. I, I, I don't get the appeal at all. Like I was very much of the opinion that I have to sleep with 50 men before I, before I settle down. Minimum. Yeah. I'm on nearly 30. I think I'm 29 or 30. I can't remember. And I, I don't feel I've had enough wooing, um, Miriam. Uh, okay, again. men listening, Helen needs <laughs> right. some wooing. I would like a, a big bucket of woo, thanks. Um, yeah, so I think that's it. And I love wooing other people. I've done a few really embarrassing things on dates, like uh, after a second date with a guy, I'd like I sent him a cookbook and another guy sent him a gift basket because he, he, he was his opening night of a show. And he's like, you've got to stop this. I was like. <laughs> I said, who, who doesn't send a gift basket to someone after a first date? They're like, nobody does, Helen. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. Uh, oh, that's amazing. I love that. Have you, have you like curtailed those practices? Are you still, are you just like, yeah, no, but like sometimes you need to send somebody or something after a date. Like, Yeah. I mean, I, I may have given, um, Someone was seeing last year five Christmas presents, but they're all little, just little things, little things. He gave me a bottle of champagne that he got from his Christmas wet party. Um, but, you know, I was very um, grateful for that. I just feel like you're like the most open-hearted human. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we're supposed to feel bad about it. But, I, you know, Brene Brown talks about this, right? Like living with, like, who should say, the full heart or an open heart, wholehearted, the wholehearted, wholehearted. person. Yeah, I am right? very much so, yeah. But I love that. Like, how what an alive way to be. Yeah, and I and I I kind of think well, I've got lots of friends who like me. I'm not terrible at my career. I've I I this is how I go about my life is to sort of, you know, joyously sort of flooding people with love. That eventually, when I do this with a bloke, it might it might <laughs> be very welcome. Sometimes it probably weirds people out. But um, yeah, I've sent a few gift baskets to men. <laughs> the money alone that you're going to save on gift baskets because you're in this nice, happy, secure relationship with your artist feels like, mm. right. That's just like a bonus. Yeah, exactly. And he, in the relationship, we, we are very good at giving each other gifts. That's something I love doing and he loves receiving and, and vice versa. There we go. That's lovely. Cause that's the thing. That's what you want. You want to get the gift back. That's excellent. Uh, yeah. So now can I get to meet Ellie? <laughs> Yes. Okay. So you basically, so you've had your kids, you're coming out of your, your kind of extended maternity leave. You guys have decided you're not going back to London, uh, back to Australia because life is in London now and it's good. Yeah. Um, how do you meet Ellie? I meet her, um, because I want to go back to stand up and I book myself a gig not far from home and she's just done her stand up gig and we meet, we meet in Deptford and um and we fall in love instantly like we like we did it in real life. Um Did you meet in Deptford in real life? Is yeah, we met at a stand-up gig in Deptford uh March twenty thirteen. And um and I'd had six years off stand up, six or seven years off stand up, and then I decided to go back and my first gig back I met Ellie. Um Why had so, you had six years off in real life? Um, because I had had children and we were living in Cambridge and it was just too tricky. I'd done a few kind of shitty gigs, but not proper gigs. Um, and it was all too hard. And like, when you move countries, you kind of have to start again. And I was kind of like, I've just done TV and a solo woman show. I've gone back to doing five minute pub gigs and to like, to go to, to London for the night, it cost like 40 or 50 quid. And I just didn't have that money and it was hard and cold and expensive. So I just sort of gave up. And I was like, oh, well, I'm really enjoying being in a couple. 
So I think coming back, if I, you know, my new life, my alternate life, I would be right in the centre of London where I could go, here, here, husband, here, have two bottles of, or not husband, artist lover, have two bottles of milk and I'm going to go off and, and do some gigs. And this is this gig where I meet Ellie. And, um, and yeah, in a similar vein, like she's studying comedy, I'm studying back again. And then that's, that's how the Scummy Mummies is formed. And is it, um, is it the same? The Scummy Mummies the same? Because you're, you're a different, you're a slightly different kind of person at this point, right? You've been, you've been loved and cherished for the last. I think people like the Scummy Mummies because I'm, you know, Australian and chaotic. I don't think I will be. I don't think I'll be, um, what's it called, any less myself. I'll still be open-hearted, but I will be more secure and loved. And so I think I think the dynamic will still be the same between Ellie and I because I'm, you know, she's organised and brilliant and very clever and quick-witted and I'm the clown. I'm the clown and I always will be a clown. <laughs> um, Do you like that? Do you like that split? I mean, it works, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well. I'm very warm and cuddly and Ellie's, you know, so sharp and interesting and, and brilliant and just, yeah, just so, 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 so clever. Um, but incredibly kind as well. Not but, and is incredibly kind um, and very protective and very um, fierce and loyal. And, yeah, that sort of loyalty is a, is a wonderful gift as well and that yeah that true love is is what I've I've um recognized as well when you guys met in real life was it sort of love at first sight and that was and you immediately formed the scummy mummies or did it sort of take some yeah so we met we met in the march and then I kind of just thought she was the coolest person ever seen she she looks a little bit like Sue Perkins and that she was wearing like she had like a leather jacket and jeans and she did really funny observational comedy and we realised we both lived in Forest Hill and we had a pint after the gig and I just thought she was so awesome. And I think about a week later we went out and had kind of had a date. Like we went out to the pub and just got really pissed and then just sort of said, we're going to be the next French and Saunders. And it was sort of real friendship from the get-go. And our boys are born 11 days apart by the same midwife. Um, mm. But we met when the boys were 18 months old. So I think I think my kids would have to be again about the same age as Ellie's again because that's been a beautiful friendship. Though it will be a technical difference. <laughs> oh yeah, because I'll be older. You'll be older. Mm. You'll be older. That's okay. Maybe the my kids are younger than hers, and maybe she's more into motherhood, and she can show me the ropes. She can okay. reassure me a bit more because I'm chaotic and I've got twins. Okay. Yeah. All right. So she does that. She is technically more advanced in her, more progressed in her career, although, because she won't have met you at whatever age you guys actually met, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be a few years down the line. We'll just say we met her. Maybe, maybe, maybe she's been a stand-up for a bit longer. Maybe we'll meet and she'll be a bit more established in her career. So we'll hit the ground sort of more established than we were. So we could kind of fast track what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's say that. Fine. You're both more established in your careers. You fast track what you've done. Which essentially means, basically, that you're where you are now. Yeah, and that, exactly. that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Full circle. We're back. We're back here. I love a full circle. But I want to check in on the artist. How's he doing? How's he doing? Because now you're like properly successful. 
because yeah, you're getting older. Really yeah. How's He's he doing? I, I think we'd have our wobbles because everyone goes through the wobbles around about two or three years into parenthood as well because you by that stage you've been tired for three years and that's when shit gets a bit mucky and you're on the cusp of them going to primary school but they're not there yet and they and kids get pretty crazy and basty and cunty around three as well my yes. one of my children I won't name was a biter and bit everybody I mean everybody uh for about a year so I was on edge uh yeah the biting was was my least favorite thing about parenthood I think uh it, it feels very- like a completely legitimate I was a biter so you know thank you karma um yeah yeah. so you guys have a little bit of a wobble to make it through make it through the wobble we do do. and um he is we are better for it uh because I did couples counseling with my uh ex and so we do some couples counseling I highly recommend that four years before my uh marriage ended we started couples counseling and I remember the first uh, session with a couple's counsellor, he said, well, you've got two choices. You can stay together or you can split up, but both choices are hard. What's it going to be? And that for me was phenomenal. So this is this is it. Like when you have these choices, when, you know, you, these paths you're going to take, oh, so many times you want to take the easier one, don't you? You want to take the one, the good, the fun, happy one. But he was not sugarcoating either option. I thought that was extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing to say to uh, a broken couple that there are no easy way out of this. And it's something I kind of, it's it's a phrase I need to use more with my kids because often they're like, you know, I don't want to do my flute practice. I want to do my homework. I'm like, well, all of it is hard work. Like you you can't just do nothing. You've got to do something. But Okay, so you and your artist i love this guy i love your artist yeah do we want to should we give him a name does he get a name or he's just the artist oh something he can be the nice artist. something really something really soft maybe something like jules you know something you know something lucian i don't know lucian no that's no jules i think would be nice like it was julian yeah and we okay. just call him jules yeah okay He's so you and Jules, you and Jules have some couple therapy because it's a useful thing when it's a useful yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And we're both tired and and we're both at the cusp, you know, in another bit of our mid-career that we want things to move forward and he needs time and I need time and he's tired and you know, it's always those the tired wars that, that you say the worst things. Yeah. Yeah. So we get through it and rekindle. My mum comes over from Australia, she looks after the twins for a couple of weeks. We go back to Venice. Oh. Have a place for a couple of weeks and rekindle it, our love. Oh, I didn't realize Venice was your happy place. I'm so pleased. It's such a nice place to be a happy place. It is. It is. I lived. I, well, I worked there for for nearly three months back in 2003 uh, on the on an Australian exhibition there, and I love I love that place. It so. is amazing, isn't it? Mm. It's so. It feels like it'd be an amazing place to actually know well, which presumably yeah. after three years you actually got to know it. Whereas as, as you, if you go there for a I week or there, something. Months I was there. Yeah, it was, just, it was just divine. Every night I went out, sat by a canal, drank Aperol. It was awesome. How do you feel? Your good. your marriage is good. Your kids are happy. Your career's kicking ass. Yeah, I um, found Ellie. You found Ellie. And, and yeah, and I feel a sense of, a real sense of purpose, I think. 
And I, I, I've gained more time with my parents and my family that I kind of lost out from coming over here when I was um, 26, 27. And then... Should yeah. we take a minute? Should we just take a minute to talk about that, actually? Just because that's one thing is that we haven't... Um... We haven't checked in about your family in general, and that was something you said right at the start, which is important. So you you got a good what did you get? You got a good like five more years in Australia yeah. with them. Do you yeah. is it something that you? I mean, presumably you. It's a really obvious question, but do you miss them a lot? Oh, I do, I do, and I think that was the hardest thing about well the pandemic, but also going through the trauma that was my divorce was that they were so far away um and when my sister got divorced you know I was in a cabin and in a house in half an hour I didn't see my sister for two years you know um and be close by to her so I think yeah of course there's this this big gaps where that but I I speak to my mum every second day and I feel a real connection uh to that my my dad is nearly 87 my mum's 80 like I've I've been very lucky and I have a really strong and happy relationship and I know other friends who live by their parents don't get along so I think I need to I I like with most things I find the joy in what I have mm. um and the positive so yeah but I have two brothers who live here in the UK and I think they would naturally come over in this other life as well and um so I'd have family around which I always have had a family member who lived in London so okay. um yeah so that's been that's been great it's a funny um it's a funny thing about expat existence isn't it like the yeah. way in which we just fully cut ourselves off from yeah. our roots in this yeah. really and it's it's completely normal and normalized but it's I don't know if you feel this way but whenever I go back home I'm always sort of struck by the ease of the relative ease of life for people who are quite close to their oh yeah families yeah yeah, and I've seen that with Ellie. Her parents are around the corner, and she mm. said for the first two or three months she lived with her parents. And like when she was tired, she went to bed, and her mum looked after the baby and brought her cups of tea. I was like, that is very different to my <laughs> first three months. <laughs> to to establish that attachment and that connection with your family is, and to feel secure in that kind of connection when you're so far away is harder. And then when your life gets disrupted, like mm-hmm. you know to not have that kind of like, you know, sometimes you just want your mom to give you a hug kind of thing when yeah. you're going through something like that. Yeah, my mom like make that. me snack or any cheese, mom. <laughs> sometimes I have to make, I've got my mom's uh, cookbook here, not her cookbook that she wrote, but the cookbook that I was brought up on, which has got like the Australian classics like, um, you know, sausage casserole and apricot chicken. Oh, God, several things. Meat, terrible meatloaf, uh, this macaroni cheese that's made with like a can of tomato soup. I mean, it's. It's quite, quite weird, but, but I make that food and I feel home. So it's, it, you know, that's, that's the thing. That's a really nice kind of image and sort of sense to end on. How do you feel in your new unlived life? How do you feel, love? Oh, I feel like skipping out the door going, yes, I really, I feel great. And I also, you know, I think I needed to talk about this today, obviously. It's been oh. very good to sort of feel like, no, you can, it, it can still happen. It might start today. It might. Yeah. You're going to skip out your door and you have no idea who's out there. No, exactly right. That's the wonderful thing. Probably well, just an Amazon delivery guy. <laughs> Bring the me John up. Lewis delivery guy a couple of days ago was one of the most beautiful men I have ever seen. I'm. Yes, please. 
Sometimes you just need that little bit of honey, a little bit of flirting with the Sainsbury's supermarket. How are you today? Oh, how? Oh, yeah. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with that. This is what we get to do. Yeah. Yeah. These are the crumbs. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you so much more than crumbs. I wish you lots of gift baskets and, and, and oh, happiness. Yes. One day someone will send me a gift basket and then I will know it is true love. I'm so happy that you visited your unlived life with me. Thank you so much, Helen. Oh my God, this has been better than therapy and a hell of a lot cheaper. Thank you, Miriam. Total pleasure. (laughs) It's not unusual to have an unlived life moment like Helen did. A moment where, as she says, someone puts on their own dimmer switch so that their partner can feel better about themselves, all in the hopes that they'll be loved more or be able to hold on just a little bit longer to that relationship with someone whose ego is just a little bit fragile. Ironically, it was letting go of this need to put the dimmer switch on, to hang on to anyone at all costs, that allowed Helen to find real lasting love and connection in her unlived life. It didn't take long after she asserted her right to be as big and bright and fabulous as she wanted, to spend her time with people who lifted her up, before she found her artist, who was secure enough and in love with her enough to allow her to shine. Helen is currently unabashedly single in her real life, with an enviable open-heartedness. But what came clear in our chat is that, despite having made the move from Australia to the UK, she's not an island. Like most of us, she needs other people in her life to feel that sense of security that's so important to her. Whether that's a man like her artist, or her parents, siblings, networks of girlfriends, and, of course, her partner in comedy crime, Ellie Gibson. I'm really very glad that we reunited them in the end. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.